You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 244, Russia and the League of Armed Neutrality. Over the past few episodes, I've focused on how Britain has been struggling with a larger war against European powers. The rebellion of its American colonies raised a sense in Britain's enemies that it might be a little weak right now. France in 1778 and Spain in 1779 went to war against Britain. Other countries also began smelling blood. Although not ready to go to war, they did hope to take advantage of the situation. You have to remember, Europe at this time was really dominated by just a few families of aristocrats that intermarried with one another. They made whatever deals they had to do to maintain alliances of national security, and they were also always ready to pounce on a neighbor in a moment of weakness in order to add to their own real estate when possible. When various European powers went to war, diplomatic efforts turned to bringing allies into the war or at least keeping potential enemies out of the war. Alliances shifted with some regularity, but a general trend over the prior couple of centuries was that Protestant countries generally squared off against Catholic countries. So, Catholic France, Spain, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire tended to ally, along with some smaller papal states on the Italian peninsula. Protestant Britain tended to ally with the Netherlands, Denmark, which included Norway, and Sweden, which included Finland, and Prussia and some of the smaller German states. Now, there were exceptions, of course. Catholic Portugal often allied with Britain because Catholic Spain tended to be its enemy. Nordic countries, including Sweden and Denmark, sometimes allied with the Catholic countries in order to fight their neighbors in the German states. Russia tended to be all over the place changing alliances regularly, sometimes in the middle of a war. It's also important to remember at this time that wars were not the massive bloodbaths that we see beginning with the Napoleonic era. In the 18th century, wars were fought between relatively small professional armies that did not involve the much larger civilian population too much. Most of these people were peasants who really didn't care that much what distant monarch claimed sovereignty over them. War would bring destruction, pillaging, and rape, of course, but since all armies did that, including the one that ruled over the people, peasants were more concerned that the war would end quickly so they could get back to trying to survive. If a different king took the same taxes and rents, it was not that much of a concern. Armies were made up of paid professional soldiers who were looking to conquer other paid professional soldiers. The sense of nationalism that we know today was quite different in 18th century Europe at a time when many countries' monarchs were born in another country or perhaps took a spouse from another country. 
the monarchs of Europe were really a separate class from the rest of the people. They controlled everything. And when they went to war, they were basically paying to build their own professional armies to protect their own real estate or conquer other monarchs within the continent. It was basically like some giant game of risk. The 18th century wars in Europe and the constantly shifting alliances could really be a whole podcast by itself, and there probably are several about it. I only mention all this by way of background for the war that broke out in the 1770s when Spain and France were at war with Britain, but the other European powers were mostly trying to stay out of the fight. War was an expensive proposition, and if you could have several other countries fighting each other while you had a chance to build up your economy and pay off your debts from past wars, you would be in a much better position against all of those countries who were fighting each other the next time a war came around. So many European powers were just trying to stay out of the war and trying to remain neutral. One of the key countries remaining neutral in this war was Russia, at this time ruled by Catherine the Great. Now, Catherine II of Russia, who was also known as Catherine the Great, was, like all other European leaders, continually shifting alliances for whatever gave her country the greatest benefit. Catherine was not Russian. She had been born in the German state of Prussia, in a place which is today part of Poland. Her name at the time was Princess Sophie. Her father, Christian August, was Prince of Anhalt-Zerbst, one of many tiny German states. Sophie's grandfather was the prince of this state, but her father was not the firstborn son, and so he was not going to be ruling the state, and he embarked on a military career like so many younger brothers of nobles did. Like many of these smaller German states at the time did, he served in the larger Prussian army, which usually provided military protection to the smaller German states in the region. Now, by the time of Sophie's birth in 1729, her father was a major general in the Prussian army. Eighteen months earlier, the 37-year-old general had married the 15-year-old Princess Joanna Elizabeth, also from a minor noble family. The couple lived a modest but comfortable life, Joanna, who was really young enough to be her husband's daughter, did not seem to get along with her husband. They had their baby relatively quickly. Joanna, who was by this time, I don't know, 16 or 17 years old, really didn't show much interest in her daughter, something else that was not unusual for royalty from this era. The family lived in a relatively modest townhouse, living a comfortable life, but almost completely separate from one another. Well, the couple did have family connections. Pretty much all royal marriages took place to other royals, meaning that almost all of them were interrelated in some way. It was a strategy to keep wealth and power within this extended family. Lower-ranking royals used marriage as a way to improve their family's status, wealth, and power. It was also not necessarily the norm to marry someone from within your own country. Marriages were a strategic way to maintain alliances. If your child married the child of your rival in another country, perhaps that rival would be less interested in waging war against the country where his grandchild was being raised. By the time Princess Sophie was eight years old, her mother began shopping her around in the great houses of Europe for a potential husband. Initially, they didn't have much luck. The family lacked wealth and position. 
a military general living in a townhouse was not impressive to the great royal families of Europe. Even so, her mother worked to find Sophie an impressive match that would enhance the family's stature. But by 1739, Sophie was 10 years old and still without a fiancé. Around that time, her mother went to visit her brother, who was Sophie's uncle, Adolf. Adolf had recently become guardian of an 11-year-old Charles Peter Ulrich, who was the only living grandchild of Peter the Great of Russia, so he was a potential heir to the throne of Russia. Also, through his other family relations, he was the potential heir to the throne of Sweden. So, the boy's prospects made him a major catch for anyone looking for a strategic marriage. Sophie and Charles were second cousins. Sophie thought the boy was childish and ugly and wanted nothing to do with him. Now that, of course, was irrelevant. The children would have no say in who they married. Her mother, Joanna, began corresponding with the boy's aunt, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth Petrovna of Russia. Elizabeth was daughter of Peter the Great. Elizabeth's mother was Peter the Great's maid. She was illegitimate, but Peter later married her mother and tried to legitimize her birth. Because of the circumstances of her birth, even though she was the daughter of the Russian Tsar, she had trouble finding a spouse among the great families of Europe herself. At one point, Elizabeth had been engaged to Joanna's brother. He died before they could get married, but Joanna used that past relationship to begin a correspondence with Elizabeth about a possible match between Joanna's daughter, Sophie, and that childish and ugly Charles Peter Ulrich that Sophie hated. A few years after the two children met, Elizabeth of Russia, through a whole series of death, coups, and other machinations that are too complex to get into here, assumed the throne of Russia and became its empress in 1741. About the time that Elizabeth assumed the throne, she brought the boy to Russia, proclaimed him her heir to the Russian throne. He would go by the name Peter, he renounced his claims to the Swedish throne, converted to the Eastern Orthodox religion, and began to prepare to take the throne upon his aunt's death. Meanwhile, Sophie's mother, Joanna, continued to encourage Elizabeth to agree to a marriage to the heir apparent of the Russian throne. Sophie's prospect of marriage grew a bit when her father finally inherited his family's principality upon the death of his last of his older brothers in 1742. But probably more important to the prospects of the marriage was that the new king of Prussia, Frederick II, later known as Frederick the Great, was very interested in supporting the marriage. Frederick wanted the marriage in order to strengthen the relationship between Russia and Prussia. He was trying to pull Russia away from an alliance with the Austrian Empire, which was Prussia's traditional enemy. Sophie's mother overplayed her hand and ended up getting expelled from Russia as an accused spy for Prussia. Elizabeth, however, had taken a liking to the young Sophie. With ministers from both Prussia and France encouraging the match as a way to improve international relations, Elizabeth finally approved the marriage. So, by 1744, Sophie was 15 years old, and she moved to Russia to prepare to become the wife of Peter. She changed her name to Catherine and converted to the Eastern Orthodox religion and also began learning how to speak Russian. 
The following year, the 16-year-old Catherine and the 17-year-old Peter were married. But by many accounts, including Catherine's, she still despised her new husband and refused to consummate the marriage. Both husband and wife began taking lovers almost immediately. While the marriage relationship was at best strained, Catherine did work hard to build a good relationship with the Empress Elizabeth. Even this relationship, though, was tactical rather than out of any sort of affection. After four years of marriage, Catherine was accused of plotting with her husband to overthrow Elizabeth and take the Russian throne before Elizabeth passed away from natural causes. The plot was crushed but kept relatively private. Afterwards, however, Elizabeth pressured Catherine to produce an heir, likely with the intention that she would leave her throne directly to their child and bypass Peter and Catherine entirely. It took a few more years, but Catherine did eventually have two children, a boy and a girl. Peter was deemed to be the father, although there is great doubt as to whether this really was the case. The children were accepted as legitimate, and the boy, Paul, took his place in line for the throne. Elizabeth took the child away from Catherine and had the baby raised in her own household by nannies and tutors. In 1762, the Empress Elizabeth died. Peter and Catherine became the new emperor and empress of Russia. At the time, Russia was embroiled in the Seven Years' War. Now remember, the whole point of marrying the Prussian Catherine to Peter was to cement the Prussia-Russia alliance. That, however, did not take place. Russia was allied with Austria, France, and Spain, and a few other powers, against Prussia, Britain, Portugal, and others. So, Russia was at war with Prussia, and actually during the war had captured Berlin. Upon his ascension to the throne, however, Peter, the Russian Tsar, favored Prussia and was a huge fan of Prussian leader Frederick the Great. He ended up switching sides in the middle of the war and allying Russia with Prussia and returning Berlin to Frederick. Catherine, of course wanting to support her husband on this important matter of state, accepted this decision. Of course, I'm joking. Catherine was deeply opposed to her husband's decision to ally with Prussia. Following the truism that well-behaved women seldom make history, she began plotting to overthrow her husband. After less than six months on the throne, Catherine used the issue of the Prussian alliance to get political support she needed to take the throne for herself and have her husband thrown in jail. Shortly thereafter, Peter died in his jail cell. It was officially ruled a stroke, but most people believed he was murdered. So, on the issue of opposing the alliance with Prussia, Russian leaders put the daughter of a Prussian general and an accused Prussian spy in command of Russia. Catherine's daughter, Paul, was only eight years old at the time and had not really lived with his mother ever. Catherine continued to leave the child's upbringing to others while she ran the country. In 1772, Paul turned 18 and decided it was time to take over from his mother. Catherine, of course, was having none of it. She managed to keep him in the shadows while she continued to rule Russia as its only leader. But Catherine did take efforts to modernize Russia and extend its commerce. Her position of power and her familial relationships with the great powers of Europe gave her some influence over international affairs. When the war began between Britain and its colonies, 
the last thing Russia wanted was to get involved in another war. Catherine had rejected entreaties from George III of Britain to hire Russian soldiers to assist in the suppression of the American rebellion. At the time George came calling, Russia had just ended the Russo-Turkish War. That war began in 1768, after Russian Cossacks in Poland crossed into Ottoman territory in what is today Ukraine. The Ottomans took the border crossing by Russian soldiers as an act of war. Perhaps Russia should have learned at the time that invading Ukraine was a bad idea, but apparently not a lesson that they took to heart. I won't go into all the details, but the war spread through the Caucasus and into the Mediterranean Sea, leading to about six years of bloody fighting. It also led to the partition of Poland in 1774, causing officers like Tadeusz Kosciuszko and Kazimir Pulaski to flee the country and eventually head to America. Russia was generally regarded as successful in the war, but it had been left in debt and exhausted as a result of fighting the war. So when Britain came calling with an offer to join another war a year later, Catherine was not interested. George would have to satisfy his military needs with the Hessians instead. As an interesting aside, Catherine's brother, Frederick Augustus, had by this time become Prince of Anhalt-Zerbst, the homeland of their father. Frederick Augustus did agree to rent some of his soldiers to George III, and they went to America with the rest of the Hessians to fight the Americans. Russia had built up an active trade with many European countries by the 1770s. Russian serfs produced iron that was feeding Britain's Industrial Revolution. Other Russian products were sent by ship to trade with the Netherlands and France. While Russia and other neutral powers were trying to avoid being drawn into war, they also did not want to end their commerce. Other northern powers, such as Denmark and Sweden, all wanted to send commercial shipping through the English Channel to countries in southern Europe. The British Navy, of course, did not want to see these neutral countries selling items to its enemies, especially if those goods could benefit the enemy's war effort. So, British ships had no compunctions about boarding neutral merchant ships in open waters and seizing any goods that they deemed to be contraband. Russia also tried sending goods on British ships, but these were seized by privateers operating in European waters. At this time, the most annoying neutral country for Britain was not Russia, it was the Netherlands. The Netherlands was sending military goods to its island colonies in the West Indies. There, American ships were purchasing these war supplies and other necessities, which they would then run back to North America for use in the ongoing war with Britain. To combat this trade, Britain tried to compromise with the Netherlands, allowing it to continue to send general trade goods to America, but not military supplies. The Netherlands rejected the offer under the principle of, you're not the boss of me, and I can do what I want arguing that it had every right to send military goods to its own colonies in the West Indies, and Britain had no authority to prevent them. If Americans were then smuggling those goods onto the American continent, that was Britain's problem. With no compromise possible, Britain informed the Netherlands that its navy would begin stopping and searching any Dutch vessel in the English Channel. In January of 1780, a small British fleet in the Channel, commanded by Commodore Charles Fielding, 
confronted a fleet of Dutch merchant ships and demanded the Dutch permit them to board and search the ships. The Dutch commander refused. Fielding then ordered his ships to open fire, after which the Dutch almost immediately surrendered, and Britain took the ships as prizes to a British port. The incident set off a diplomatic flurry as Dutch officials protested the British Navy's attack on neutral merchant ships. It also gave Russian Empress Catherine the incident she needed to announce Russia's new declaration of armed neutrality. Russia saw the growing discord as a chance to increase Russian influence. Catherine announced that Russia would resist any efforts by foreign ships to search Russian-flagged vessels at sea. Russia entered into a treaty with Denmark and Sweden to cooperate in resistance to searches or any other interference with merchant vessels in the open sea. It further demanded that the countries at war, Britain, France, and Spain, agree to respect these rights. The principles asserted by the treaty were that neutral vessels could navigate freely between ports and along the coasts of nations that were at war. Even if neutral vessels carried property belonging to countries that were at war, they could be carried freely without interference, with the exception, of course, of contraband items such as arms or ammunition. The agreement would protect cargo such as naval stores or ships' timber that might be used in supporting a belligerent country's war effort, but also had a legitimate peacetime use. A belligerent could blockade a port and prevent commercial traffic, but this could only be respected if it was a clear naval force blocking a port. Roving vessels with intent to search or seize neutral merchant ships could not claim to be part of a blockade. Spain and France accepted these principles as they were laid out in the treaty pretty much right away. Britain received the declaration from the Russian ambassador on April 1, 1780. Britain agreed as a matter of policy to comply with some of the principles but it would not recognize any of them as international rights. Britain believed that its navy was its most powerful weapon against France and Spain, and giving up the power to interdict trade would hamper its war effort. Challenging British resistance to the declaration, Russia announced that its League of Armed Neutrality would deploy a fleet of 84 Russian, Danish, and Swedish warships to keep open the seas to neutral merchant vessels. If the British attacked these ships, it could lead to open war against the League, something that Britain really could not afford at the time. The end result was that the League further isolated Britain from the rest of Europe. The Netherlands attempted to join the League, but Britain ended up declaring war on the Netherlands before they got a chance to join, thus taking them out of the category of being a neutral. And we'll get it to Netherlands' entry into the war in a later episode. Over the next few years, other major powers of Europe joined the League, adopted its principles, and to some extent contributed to its enforcement. These entries into the League included Prussia, Austria, and Portugal, who would all join in 1781. Even Russia's rival, the Ottoman Empire, joined in 1782, and the powers that make up what is today southern Italy joined in 1783. The result was that virtually all of Europe was either at war with Britain or part of the League that was hostile to Britain's naval policies. Britain was finding itself even further isolated and subject to even greater threat from its lack of allies. Next week, though, Britain opts to expand the war even further with its decision to attack Spanish outposts in Central America. 
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters and the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Kurt Avard. Thanks also to Kevin Hansen and Evan Allen, who joined as standard bearers last month. They will be getting their first flag magnets this month. Also thanks to John Vanzana, Jeffrey Voorhees, Paul Thiessen, and Jason Burnett for one-time contributions via PayPal. All of this really does help cover my expenses for the podcast. Now, as many of you noticed, I did not release a new episode last week. As I've mentioned before, my day job has become more demanding recently, leaving me less time to work on the podcast. Now, rather than try to cut corners and slap out something every single week, I've come to the difficult decision to cut back to about three episodes each month, rather than the pace of four or five that I've been doing up until now. I realize this is a disappointment for those of you who have become accustomed to releases every single week, but I just can't keep up with that pace. I hope you understand. My offer still stands that if I can get 300 Patreon supporters, I will quit my day job and devote myself entirely to the podcast. And I appreciate many of you who have stepped up, but reaching that goal does not seem very realistic this year, so I have decided to slow down my release schedule a bit. Hopefully this is temporary, and the responsibilities of my day job will subside over time, but this is where I am for right now. I also wanted to remind anyone who can make it to Nathan's Papers, who is holding an Authors of the American Revolution Congress in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, from noon to 5 on April 23, 2022. The theme this year's Congress is Revolutionary Storytelling, Reading Beyond the History Books. They've asked me to talk about how podcasting makes a great medium for presenting history. The event is totally free, but you do have to register there's going to be a lot of really great authors there who have written on the American Revolution, so if you can make it, please do. Go to nathanspapers.com and click on Events for more details. Hope to see you there. For those of you who are interested in my process, I usually write out my list of episode topics months, even years in advance. That way I can make sure that I cover everything in what is basically chronological order and I don't mistakenly skip over something. So the League of Armed Neutrality has been scheduled for this point for some time. The initial creation of the League takes place in early 1780, and that's where we are in our timeline of the war. I initially was just going to mention the League in passing and then go on to discuss the British invasion of San Juan, 
but I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on Catherine the Great, who was the leading force behind the League. I just found her background to be fascinating as an example of 18th century politics among the royals of Europe. I also figured that maybe a closer look at Russia during this era might be interesting because Russia is so much in the news these days. I will get to the British San Juan expedition next week as its own episode. The League of Armed Neutrality, or as it would later be called, the First League of Armed Neutrality, since others followed, was seen as a step toward eliminating mercantilism and opening up free trade between nations, something that only grew in the 19th and 20th centuries. After the 1783 treaty that ended the war, this First League became no longer necessary. It would, however, return as the Second League during the Napoleonic Wars. All this stuff really does form the basis of international trade laws that exist today. As for Catherine the Great, she is just one of those larger-than-life figures that I think are a fascinating read. There are lots of great stories that go well beyond the American Revolution, including the story that she had sex with a horse. I kid you not. But leaving aside those bizarre stories, the rise of a minor Prussian princess to become a celebrated empress of the Russian Empire, and the numerous battles she had with her own family to get there and stay there, makes for a really interesting read. There are lots of Catherine the Great biographies out there. My recommendation this week is the one by Robert Massey, Catherine the Great, Portrait of a Woman. It's over 600 pages and was first published in 2011. It was a New York Times bestseller and has won several awards. Massey wrote a number of books about the imperial family of Russia He was a journalist and a professor, and he died, unfortunately, in 2019. If you're interested in reading more about Russia during this era, Massey's Catherine the Great, Portrait of a Woman is a great read. My online recommendation is an old journal article called The United States and the League of Neutrals by William Carpenter. This is a 1921 article which discusses the U.S. perspective on the formation of the League of Armed Neutrality. Despite the article's age, I can't find a freely accessible copy, but you can read it on JSTOR if you register for a free account. As always, you can find links to these recommendations and other sources on my blog entry for this episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com. As always, I try to include my sources for this episode, plus other interesting reading on related topics with each episode. So more than just these two recommendations, you'll find a whole list of things to take a look at on my blog. My question this week asks, if Britain were a mere 100 miles from America, would they have won the Revolutionary War? Personally, I think the shorter distance would have prevented the war in the first place. The journey from Britain to the American colonies took more than a month, sometimes up to three months if the weather did not cooperate. It was also a difficult journey. I've read a statistic, which I think I've mentioned before, that about 11% of British soldiers who were sent to America died on the voyage to or from America. The result of a long and difficult passage was that officials in London were unable to communicate with local colonial leaders. They often received information that was affected by the bias of colonial governors or simply incorrect information. Even if accurate, several months would pass between the time that colonies sent information and the time they could receive a response. 
Had there been better and faster communication before the war, things might not have gone quite as far as they did as to break out in open warfare. Even if open fighting had begun, the British would have much more easily deployed regulars to quell the rebellion without sending them so far away that Britain itself would become vulnerable. England had been able to quash rebellions in Scotland or Ireland for centuries. Ireland had a larger population than the combined population of colonists in North America at the time, yet it was firmly under the thumb of English subjugation. In short, distance from Britain was a major factor, and I would argue probably a decisive one, in the colony's ability to win independence. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me on social media or email me. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.